Hey y'all, it's your girl KDT. As we wrap up October and National Disability Employment Awareness Month, our guest today is a lawyer who's going to be talking to us about future planning and what we need to do as caregivers to make sure our loved ones with special needs are cared for when we're not able to be there for them. She's also the auntie of a young man on the spectrum. And while he is nonverbal, he does like to let his auntie know that he enjoys hearing her on the mic. So you may hear him in the background. It's all a part of being a part of the village of someone with special needs. Also, Sisters Empowering Women Needs You, the nonprofit arm of In My Shoes, will be gearing up to give out Thanksgiving meals for those in need for the holiday. And we hope that you'll join us. Everything you need to know to donate is in the show notes. Now, take notes and get some great information from this important episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It is a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues we are facing each and every day. And I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson. Hope everybody is doing great out there today. As always, you guys know I'm excited about every guest I have on the show. And I have someone today that I met in Clubhouse. I told y'all Clubhouse is giving me life. So I met Sandy in Clubhouse, Sandy Boystron, and I'm going to have her introduce herself. And then we will get into why I asked her to be my guest today. So, hey, Sandy, how are you? Hey, Karen. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really excited about this conversation because um, if anybody has been listening, you know that special needs and um, the special needs community is near and dear to my heart. I have a daughter with special needs. So Sandy, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and tell them as much as you'd like them to know about you? Absolutely. So I am an auntie, an attorney, an advocate, and an author. I spend a great deal of time engaging with the autism community because I'm the auntie of a teenager who is autistic. He is 15 years old. He is non-speaking. And he has definitely allowed me to learn a lot about the world of autism because I live in home with him. So you know, I get the full experience. Um, in terms of my practice, uh, I'm an attorney who is licensed to practice here in Florida where I handle estate planning, probate, and guardianship matters. Um, and I found myself in a special area of working with autism families um, to establish guardianships and also do some special needs planning. Um, so I, I dibble and dabble in a lot of different things. And I love all the A's, auntie, advocate, attorney, right? So <laughs> um, how was it when you found out, how old was your nephew? And what was it like when you all found out that he um, was on the spectrum? So my nephew was, um, I would estimate he was about two or so, probably two and a half or so years old. Um, he had just had his um, last set of shots, um, or actually he was just in the middle of his set of shots. And there was this one particular week where he just shifted gears. It was almost like it was a different kid. And he started to do some different things um, that he hadn't done before. Um, he initially started to say a few words and to kind of mimic and, 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 you know, develop a little bit of language. And there was just this one particular week where he would not speak. He would not give us eye contact. Um, there were certain things that he would do with his toys that just signaled to us something is different here. And what ended up happening around that time is, you know, my brother spent a great deal of time looking into some services and getting him some early you know, education support. And, you know, that kind of helped get my nephew in the mix. Um, but we shortly after discovered that, in fact, they suspected he had autism, which for us, we, we had no clue what they were talking. We didn't know what that was. 
And so it was a, it was a huge learning curve to try to not only figure out what this was, figure out what services were out there, and then find whatever supporting resources we could because at that point in time, this was back in 2008, nine, um, there wasn't a lot, especially down here in South Florida. There was not a lot and it took a lot of effort to find just resources alone. And I have to agree with that. Um, I, I think Florida in general struggles in this area. Um, I'm here in Tampa and my daughter is a little older than your nephew. She is 20 and she is also on the spectrum. That's one of her diagnoses. And it was very difficult for me to find services, help. Um, I've had to travel to other counties. Uh, and so I think Florida in general really suffers. It's sad uh, when it comes to that. Um, and just quickly, and then we'll get more into your specialty, but did you find that as you looked for these services, as your brother looked for them, that there were not a lot of people of color either heading up some of these services or even as a part of maybe support groups? Did you sometimes find yourself a minority in that aspect also? I would say in, in a double sense. So not only did we feel like, uh, you know, it was a minority in terms of, you know, racial background and things like that but also felt like a minority just in the general population because, you know, you almost felt like you were an oddball in wherever you were because I didn't see a lot of families out with their children who were autistic. And so there were certain behaviors that my nephew was exhibiting at different times that we were like, you know, you know, it's, it's odd when you look and, and other folks will kind of look over and be like, well, what is wrong with them? I was like, nothing's wrong with him. He has special needs. Like he has, he has special things that he needs for us to support him with. Um, but it really made you feel kind of like a sore thumb, no matter where you were, whether it was in a restaurant or, you know, out and about at, at different events or community things. And so that I think was a little bit more challenging than just the racial component, because that we expected, um, you know, everywhere we went, most of the providers were definitely not, they didn't look like my nephew. And most of the things that were out and available were not available across the board. So if, for example, like my nephew at the time had Medicaid, um, if you had Medicaid, you definitely weren't getting any services for certain things. Um, you had to be either privately um, able to pay or, you know, had some kind of program that was supporting that need. So I, I did find it was, it was very difficult initially because friends, family, community, you almost felt like you were ostracized in your own world, right? And that's what was the most challenging for us. Yeah, I could, I can relate to that also. My daughter um, is verbal, but um, you, you know, you could just tell her sometimes people would say something to her and then get all vexed because she wouldn't answer. And it's like, she, she, you know, because the, it, you know, looking down, it was, it was a lot and crowds really kind of freaked her out. Uh, so I can, I can definitely relate. It's like people always, well, what's the matter? There's nothing to matter. You know, she just processes things differently um, and she requires different types of care than what another child might require. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I'm curious, as a lawyer um, and then as an auntie and as well as an advocate, when did you all start thinking about plans for him going forward? Uh, you know, what types of plans you all would need to put in place for his care? So that's a difficult question because I will say starting out, that wasn't even really a thought. Um, the most pressing part was trying to figure things out because there was, it was almost like starting from a blank slate with no clue whatsoever what this was, 
how we were going to approach it. And at the time, I was not a lawyer. I was actually um, in education. So I was a public school teacher at the time, and I was preparing my path to go to law school. And so my kicker at that point was to focus on any educational resources, activities, programs. I started to do the deep dive into whatever I could find. And I want to say that the first resource that we found um, was um, some dance, um, dance therapy, dance and music therapy classes. And if I'm not mistaken, we also found something that had to do with sports. Um, but the planning piece, I, I, I can regrettably say we didn't have that thought. It was more so how do we survive with this at the moment? Now, when I became an attorney, however, that became a whole different ballgame because I started to understand what things needed to be in place. And then at that point as well, my brother had already had a lot of um, some of the uh, programmatic things already set up, you know, so whatever lists or waivers he had to sign up for or whatever programs he had to get my nephew into so that he could already be in the system, he worked on that. Um, and I just continued to chip away at programs. And then at this point in time, you know, a lot of the paperwork that I have in place are geared towards supporting my nephew on the, in the long term. So when it comes to things like life insurance or any other you know, funds that I have that would be available, I have earmarked certain things so to make sure that my nephew has some long-term care goals accomplished. And do you think that, you know, as you were preparing to um, enter law school and, you know, decide on your specialty, do you think this experience and um, helping with your nephew shaped what you decided you wanted to, uh, the type of law you wanted to practice? You know, interestingly enough, I, I will say no, actually. It, it, it's weird because when I went to law school, um, you know, all I knew was that I was going to be a, a practitioner, like I was going to have my own practice and I was going to be able to do all kinds of things and support my family. That was my main thought. So when it came to my nephew, you know, again, we're still not understanding what this thing is. You know, in, in our minds, we're thinking, you know, there must be some kind of, you know, treatment that's going to make him um, be able to have, you know, a certain quality of life or some programs or, you know, medications. Like we're thinking that this is just um, more of a right now, even though the doctors and things like that didn't make it sound like it was a right now. They made it sound like it was the end of time. And it, it, they didn't make it sound like he was going to have a life at all. And that was a sad thing. Um, however, we didn't allow that to, to fester into our thoughts. How Now, when I actually decided what I was going to practice was late in my law school career because it was probably like my last year of law school that I decided I was going to do estate planning. And it was not in the realm of talking about autism or you know anything in the special needs community. It wasn't until I actually became an attorney and I started to work that I started to figure out some things that I enjoyed and I stumbled upon guardianship as an area of practice. So it really, it came about in a weird roundabout way that was nowhere near my thought process at all, funny enough. Which I guess is interesting. You know, you would just think automatically, hey, this is what I'm going to practice because of my nephew. But um, I know early on for me, I probably didn't start thinking about future planning for her until she got into her teenage years. Because you're right, in the beginning, you're trying to find services. And then quite frankly, I was just trying to survive day to day. You know, it was like, I was just trying to make it with whatever was going on. You know, my daughter has multiple diagnoses. That's a whole nother topic. But, um, 
you know, I was just in survival mode. And as she got older, I thought, my God, you know, soon I'm going to have to figure out what is going to be best for her as she becomes a young adult. Um, And then as there is future planning that needs to be done. Um, And you mentioned guardianship, which is one of those things that I've been kind of, you know, I waffle back and forth about. Explain just in layman's terms, and I know that may be hard to do, but how guardianship works exactly. So guardianship is an interesting process. And and I will say most people don't have even a real clue of what it entails and why it's in place. So the reason that guardianship was put into place was to support a need. And it's basically saying that someone is unable to handle their medical decisions or their financial decisions or both on their own. And that could be due to medical condition. That could be due to disability. That could be due to age. Um, There's so many reasons why a guardianship is put into place. In the context of special needs, a guardianship is utilized because once the child who has special needs becomes an adult, so they hit 18, they are an adult under the eyes of the law. And with that said, in order for the parents or other family members to be able to continue to support them and act on their behalf, they have to put some paperwork in place to do so. Normally, if somebody is capable of making decisions for themselves, they can put into place a power of attorney or healthcare designation and give someone else the authority to handle their affairs. But when you have a child with special needs, especially if if you have a child that is unable to do certain things for themselves, they can't give you that authority because technically they don't have the capacity to do so. And so when you go to the guardianship process, There's two pieces. One is determining that this person can't make those medical and financial and activities of daily living decisions for themselves. And the other part is getting someone appointed by the court to make those medical, financial, and activities of daily living decisions. So what guardianship does is it first declares the person incapacitated, either partially or totally, and then it appoints someone through the court through some screening, as the guardian. That may be a parent. That may be another family member. It could be a friend of the family. And it also can be someone who is a public guardian that gets paid to provide that service or what they call um, a professional guardian. And, and again, all of these individuals have different you know, ratings of pay and things like that. Um, but overall, guardianship allows you, for example, as a parent, to speak on behalf of your child, medically, financially, and in other realms. And it allows you to have paperwork in hand so that when you go to the doctor, when you go to the, you know, the government facilities, when you go to the schools, that you have paperwork that says, I am authorized to speak on behalf of this adult child with special needs. And the one question I've always had, and it's one of the reasons why i um, I've kind of struggled with what to do as it relates to trying to get this with my daughter. Let's say, you know, like my daughter is, is verbal. I don't know, um, you know, if your um, nephew is, you know, able to make decisions or understand what's being said to him. He just doesn't speak. But um, I've always worried about from a legal standpoint, let's say she goes and I don't know, break something or does something that as an, as a, a minor, I would have been responsible for as her parent. How does that work? Does that factor in at all to guardianship? 
So the beauty with guardianship is it provides this person with a status that says that, you know, they have an incapacity, they're unable to handle their affairs. And so while it doesn't excuse them from their actions, it does give a justification for their actions. So in essence, you having some paperwork to support your daughter doesn't necessarily mean that all of her rights will be eliminated. It just means that you're going to have some paperwork where you can support her. Because if she's verbal, for example, and can make some decisions for herself, it might be a partial guardianship. It might be a voluntary guardianship, you know, if she's able to communicate at that level. It's just dependent upon what her specific needs are and whether or not she has certain things that she's unable to do on her own without at least some support or at least some oversight. And does this have to be done? Should people start looking at this before the child turns 18? I know you just said that she can, I guess, voluntarily say, hey, I want my mom to do this and this. But if we're going to go through the court, let's say, does that have to be done before the child turns 18? So the best time to really start getting this going, once your child starts to edge into that time frame, so you started around like 16, 17, you want to start laying the groundwork, figuring out what you need to get done to go through the courts getting the necessary paperwork ready, um, starting to prepare your child for this process. Because if your child is able to communicate, you want to be able to start to lay the foundation with them so that they understand what's going to be happening as they approach age 18. Um, the other thing is knowing that these court processes can take a long time. And with COVID, the way it is right now, you know, I definitely advise folks to start getting the legwork, the paperwork and the attorneys lined up and, and start getting those things done as early as possible. So six, late 16s, you know, 17 is great, um, but before 18 would be preferred because what you don't want is to be in a situation where you end up needing the documentation and now you have to wait through the court process after age 18 has already arrived. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. <laughs> Uh, because like most people, as you said, I, I don't, I didn't completely understand the process. Um, and because she is verbal and she can make decisions, they just suck. <laughs> um, I just didn't know how much I would be able to, um, you know, be able to have a court say, yes, you can have guardianship for this or that. Um, what other ways or areas in terms of, of planning, if you have a special needs, a loved one, uh, that you're responsible for. Are, is guardianship the only thing people should be looking at? So guardianship is just a portion of the big picture because one of the things that you have to be mindful of is long-term, this child may need support. And that level of support depends specifically on your child, right? So you have to start figuring out what is going to be in place to provide for their health care for their physical day-to-day -day activities, for their socializing, for their education. So you have to set up plans for all of these things because as we all know, you know, our, our time you know, is limited. And so we have to make sure that we don't wait until the last minute to get these things in place. So while you're putting things in place like the guardianship, if it's needed, or any other advanced directive. So if you have a child that has special needs, but you know they still can make some decisions for themselves. You may not have to go to the extreme of guardianship. There may be some lesser situations that you can get into like guardian advocacy, very similar to guardianship, less restrictions. So it allows you to still provide that support and oversight and assistance to your child, 
shorter process, less hoops and ladders, but it's really intended for children who have conditions like autism and who have some ability to make some decisions for themselves, but do still need somebody to be the overseer of, of that process. And then um, when it comes to the other plans that you should have in place, you know, you yourself have to have documents in place to make sure that financially your child is going to be fine, that you have some people lined up to assist if that need be. So having things like a trust in place that has supplemental needs trust provisions or what sometimes they call special needs trust provisions, having a pre-need guardian for yourself, um, having you know an individual lined up to be a trustee to support your child's needs so that your child doesn't end up having to have strangers serve in those positions. So it's, it's an important thing to make sure that you kind of line up all of your plans. So having your own power of attorney documents in place, having your healthcare documents in place for yourself, having a trust in place, if that's something that will help support your child's needs over time, in addition to going through that guardianship process. And how long have you been working in this area of law and what has been the most rewarding about this kind of work for you? I think the best part about this has been um, being able to support a need for, for a number of families who just didn't really understand this whole process. And my education background has kicked in heavily because I'm an educator by nature. Um, I have a way of being able to explain processes I have a way of being able to relate to my families because I myself deal with a lot of the struggles that they have. You know, my nephew has certain behavior. He has self-injuring behaviors. He's non-speaking. Um, he has some challenges intellectually. Um, he has a lot of different things that um, I can definitely relate with the families that I work with. And so, you know, being able to provide some kind of a customized service, being able to relate um, and being able to see where they are and not treat them like just another number on, on my roster. Um, I think that's been extremely helpful to me. And it's also extremely rewarding to know that I have something that I can provide to a family that will allow them a little bit of peace of mind, knowing that they have something in place. So if something happens to their child, at least someone can step in. So that that is both with me doing guardianship as well as me doing um, the estate planning piece. So we've talked a lot about your role as an attorney and, um, you know, you also talked about your advocacy. So what has that part been like for you um, advocating for? Is it just for um, families with children who have autism or for special needs families? And what are some of the deficiencies that you see um, that we as a, as a society, as a state need to work on to better support uh, these types of families? I think one of the major things that has always really irked me when, when I think about how we interact in the world with those who have special needs, especially those who are autistic, because I think the imagery that's put out for autism is always the savant, um, you know, the kid that has all of these extreme talents and abilities. And it's, it's almost like it, it's a bit disturbing because I see so many children who have so many struggles. And it's not to say that I would want the world to be capitalizing on their struggles alone. I would just want to see a diverse perspective of what autism is and what it isn't. You know, autism is a spectrum. Every kid has a different way of interacting with the world. And I wish that more folks 
allowed them to have that room to do that, right? So, it, you know, when you're out and about with your kid um, and people give these weird stares and, and they're looking and like, you know, why are they doing that kind of thing? Um, that's a hard thing. So when I stepped into my advocacy role, it was to educate my friends, to educate my family, to educate those in my community about what autism is and what it isn't, to educate folks on the struggles that children on the autism spectrum face because of the variety of conditions that many of them experience, and to kind of demystify this idea that everybody with autism has all of these special skills and talents and they don't have any issues. Right. I, I think everybody has a challenge, whether you have autism or not. But I think it's very important to keep an understanding of what it means to have special needs. It doesn't mean that the child is special. It means that the child has special needs. That means we should be supporting and providing guidance and direction instead of providing looks and, and weird behaviors towards someone who is already dealing with a lot of challenges. So. I've been finding myself doing a lot of, you know, social media type education. Um, I know during Autism Awareness Month, I have a whole series that I do on my social media where I talk 30 days of autism and I spend each day talking about different issues. And I've been doing it for a couple of years now. And it's been helpful to just my local community, the folks who follow me on social media, and, and really to my friends and family. They've been really helped by understanding oh, wow, these are the things that you and your family go through and think about. Um, so it's really just being a voice um, because my nephew has a voice, but he is not able to use it in the way that we can share the information. Do you ever get the sense that he is aware of some of the stares or the way that people um, look at him when he's out in public? Um, I, I most times feel like he's a bit oblivious to, you know, what people's impressions are of him, um, which, which is a little bit scary sometimes because, you know, he moves about and he's a big kid. He's, he's not a small kid. He's extremely tall. He's taller than his auntie and his grandma and almost as tall as his dad at this point. Um, so I, I don't feel like he gets a gist of the folks around him as much, but I do know that he feel, feeds off of emotions and behaviors. Um, he is very aware of his surroundings. He is very aware of what he wants. He communicates in many different ways using his pecs and his tablet. Um, and and he, he does a really great job now using his hand signals and um, trying to share with you what he wants. Um, so that is one thing that I, I, I know my nephew has a great ability of expressing himself in different ways. Um, my fear is that he doesn't catch on sometimes to other people's expressions towards him. Um, and, and that can be a little bit uh, a scary. Yeah, I can relate to that. My daughter, um, I don't know how your nephew is, but crowds was a, a big thing for her, um, made her very nervous. And so she sat in a special needs stroller until she was, gosh, 10 maybe. And the looks I would get like if I was in the mall and bless her heart, she was totally oblivious. She'd have her little game or she'd do a crossword. You know, she liked word searches or coloring or whatever. No idea how people were perceiving her. Um, and it would irritate me because obviously there's an issue if you got a 10-year-old in a stroller. So I, I don't need you staring at me. Um, but we got that quite a bit. So um, it does sometimes worry me as well that my daughter isn't as aware of 
how, of, of what's going on around her and how she's being perceived. Um, sometimes I think I felt like it was a good thing because it would save her the feeling of being uncomfortable. But as she gets older, I, I wish that she picked up on those cues a bit more. Um, so we've talked about your role as an, uh, as an advocate and an attorney. What do you like best about being an auntie? Oh, man, it, it's so many things. It's um, it's a daily learning experience. I will say that um, my nephew never ceases to amaze me at, at his ability to really function in this world that is not always as welcoming to folks who have any kind of special needs. Um, and, and it's amazing to me that his spirit is, he always seems pretty, pretty cheerful, right? He seems pretty happy. Um, he, you can tell that he has great love for his dad. You know, my, my brother's a single father, so um, you, you can tell he has great love for his dad, um, and he understands who we are in the grand scheme of things. His village, um, because he resides in the home with myself, um, his dad, my, my my parents, his grandparents, um, and so it's it's an interesting experience to say the least. Um, but I, you know, I just smile because I know that my nephew has a great support system. And no matter what experiences he has to go through in life, um, he knows he has his dad, he knows he has his auntie and his grandma, and, and he knows he has a, a support. So I feel like, I don't feel like he would feel alone at this point in his life. What is something that you uh, would say he loves to do? Oh my gosh, the puzzles, the puzzles. He has these, um, I think they're called tanagrams. There are these little puzzles that basically he just does this stuff over and over and over and over. Um, and it's putting pieces together in different shapes and, and structures. And the second thing is, well, eating, of course, all things carbohydrate, all things fried, <laughs> all things uh, chicken nuggets, uh, French fries, pizza, pasta. And I think he added spinach as an additive. <laughs> and um, he's a music lover. So you will catch him from time to time. If you play some good music, uh, he, he'll show you a few moves. So um, my nephew has has some interesting things that he enjoys. They must be kindred spirits when it comes to that food, girl, because my baby loves anything fried, the nuggets, the junk food. Oh, my Lord. As she got older into her teenage years, food that I had been cooking for years. I want McDonald's. I'm like, you really? <laughs> so they are kindred spirits when it comes to that. <laughs> um, just as we uh, wrap up again, every now and then I talk to somebody where I look up and I can't believe that 30 minutes or 40 minutes have gone by. Uh, just a last, a few last questions uh, with your attorney hat on. One, uh, what is a big mistake that you think people uh, can make when it comes to uh, trying to put a plan together for their loved one going into future planning and estate planning? I think it's assuming that other people are going to provide the same care and attention that you provide to your own child. Um, many times I see folks putting plans together and it's like, oh, well, I'm sure so-and-so will do this. I'm sure so-and-so will do that. And I'm like, you know, a, a major part of the planning process is communicating with those that you want to be involved in that process ultimately. And it's making sure that you're you're clear on what's happening with your child right now and providing some guidance because anything can happen to you at any time. And having a plan in place is not just having a name and an account number and, you know, some money in the bank, right? It has to be 
what are your child's daily activities? Where does your child go to school? What does your child not enjoy? What does your child find extreme joy doing? What are some of the little ticks that, you know, really agitate your child? Like, you know, when you mentioned the whole thing about crowds with your daughter, you know, are we identifying those things in our plan? Many neglect to do that. And so when something happens to that parent, the next person that's there to step in has absolutely no clue because you have to keep in mind, they don't live in the house with your child. So it's not like myself, you know, I live with my nephew so I can, I can function with him in, at a level. But for some stranger who would be coming in to care for him, I have to have a plan in place that not only covers medical, financial, daily living activities, I got to get down to his behaviors, his therapies, the people that work best with him, any little ticks that he has concerns about, you know, self-injuring behaviors. Um, what is it called? Pika or pica behaviors, like any of those types of behaviors that someone would really need to know. I think people forget that. And they also assume that, you know, my sister's just going to step in. And she's going to do it. Well, maybe your sister might not be the best fit for that. Maybe your sister is the best fit to make sure that his finances are taken care of. And maybe there's somebody else that's more suited to care for his uh, general well-being and things like that. So that's something that I, I see a lot. And if you had to name, let's say you're talking to somebody who's listening to this podcast and maybe this is the first time they've thought about it or they know they need to do something and they just don't know where to begin, uh, what would be the first thing you would suggest that they do to get the ball rolling? So I would first say, let's, let's do some education. Um, on the Florida Bar website, they have something called consumer information pamphlets. They have all kinds of topics, wills, probate, um, trusts, guardianship. Start to educate yourself on what this is. YouTube is a great resource. There's a lot of attorneys on there that talk about guardianship and probate and estate planning. Um, educating yourself is a great first step. And once you're able to do that, then you want to start seeking out the legal counsel that you can utilize to get your guardianship and estate planning done. Do your research. If you go to the Florida Bar website, you can search for attorneys by region of the state, um, by practice areas, by how long they've been practicing. You can look for those factors and start to interview folks to figure out who's the best fit for you and your family. Uh, but education, there's I, I can't say anything more than education. And if people want to reach out to you to um, set up an appointment, ask questions, just follow you. Where are the best places for them to go to find you? So you can find me on social media, for example, Instagram at Spectrum Law. So it's S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M-L-A-W. You can go to our website, thespectrumlawfirm.com. So again, it's T-H-E, spectrumlawfirm.com. Um, you can also call our main number, 888 959 8264. So you have a variety of ways that you can reach me. I do respond to social media DMs and I'll send you our link um, so you can you know, sign up for an appointment. And if you mention uh, this podcast, I'll definitely give you a 15 minute call on me. Well, that is very generous, generous of you, Sandy. I really appreciate that. One final question. Um, I know you are in South Florida, but if someone wanted to work with you and they live in Tampa or Orlando or Sarasota, um, is that something that you do or is it mostly uh, in the South Florida area? 
So COVID has allowed me to become basically completely virtual. And at this point, I work with clients throughout the state. Um, so no matter where they are in the state, if they're okay with working with me through video conference and telephone calls and email, um, I can definitely work with families anywhere in the state. Sandy, I just want to thank you for your time today. I hope that people will listen to this episode and really take advantage of the information that you've given today. And please take advantage of Sandy's generous offer with her time so that you can get on the right road. We need to make sure that our loved ones are taken care of when we know that they're not able to do it for themselves. So if there's anything you want to hear us talk about on In My Shoes, you know what to do. Hit me up at KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. That is KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. And until we get a chance to meet again, be blessed.